We're going to be looking at the temptation of Jesus uh, in the first 11 verses of Matthew chapter 4. And the title of this morning's sermon is Preparing to Be a Disciple Maker Facing Temptation. So Matthew chapter 4 verses 1 through 11, when you've arrived there, will you stand uh, out of reverence for God's word as we read? Give you a second to get to your feet there. All right, Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, hear the word of the Lord. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Then the tempter approached him and said, If you are the Son of God, then tell these stones to become bread. And he answered, It is written, Man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will give his angels orders concerning you and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus told him, it is written, do not test the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus told him, go away, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and began to serve him. Heavenly Father, most gracious God, as we look at this temptation of Jesus, I pray that you would, you would help us to see the need to stand firm when temptation comes. And I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear as we examine some of these tactics that the enemy uses to try to tempt us to fail and to fall and to rebel against you. And as we consider these things, I pray that it will spur us on, God, as we see to be, seek to be disciple-making disciples. In Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this morning we are, as you probably are aware, if you've been with us since the start of the year, we're, we're coming back to this idea of being a disciple-making disciple. Uh, that is the, the title of this series that we are in, uh, Disciple-Making Disciples. And we are remembering that this is what New Breed is all about. Uh, This is what this church is all about. We say that we exist to make disciples, to show off Christ where life exists. We exist to make disciples. And in turn, those disciples will then start to show off Christ where life exists. So we declare as this local gathering of God's people that we believe we are left here on this earth to glorify God by seeing disciples made. Now, if we believe that, that's a weighty statement, isn't it? That we believe that God has left us here, right? That when we were saved, we didn't just go up to heaven, but he has left us here as believers to glorify God by making disciples. And so that's the reason that we've been focusing on this topic. And we want to make sure that we have a solid grasp of both what is a disciple and how it is that we make disciples. So we have spent the month of January thus far just focusing on what it looks like to be a disciple. And what we've basically done in each sermon is we've just answered some questions. We've answered the questions of of what are the marks of a disciple. We've answered the question of what are the necessary components of a disciple. And last week we talked a little bit a little bit about what are the actions that are that need to happen if we are going to move 
move from being a disciple to a disciple maker. And so in some sense, this is the last sermon before we begin to look at the actual process of making disciples. And we'll spend the month of February doing that. And again, in some way, you could consider this a transition of sorts because it will encompass both aspects of being a faithful disciple, but also making sure that that we've got a good, solid grasp uh, as we, we embark on this high calling of making disciples and, and what we're going to talk about is fighting temptations in the process of being a disciple-making disciple. And let me just kind of briefly explain why this is so important. The reason that it's so important for us to consider this idea of temptations as we prepare to be disciple-makers is because we as Christians are in a fight. We are in a spiritual battle. And we began talking about that a little bit last week when we... we about having compassion on individuals, and I reminded you that people are not your enemy. And we've got to understand that because that can get misconstrued sometimes in our head when we think about, when we think about uh, defending the faith and sharing the gospel. So often there's a temptation to look at people and see people as our enemy. But we, we said that, that, listen, lost people aren't the antithesis of the gospel. They're the reason for the gospel. Amen? And so want to see people as our enemy, but as Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, that our struggles are not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil, against spiritual forces in the heavens. And so what we have to understand as Christians is that every moment of every day there is spiritual warfare all around us. And we are in the midst of a fight. But you know, as I was thinking through this, I was thinking about the reality that it is a very dangerous thing when we enter a fight and we're unprepared for the fight. If you are a soldier who is being sent to the front line and you don't load your weapon before you get there, when the bullets start flying, I would be willing to bet you're going to be in a bad way. If you are an athlete who is in some sort of contest, right, some physical sport, and and you spend no time preparing and you enter into that arena, I would be willing to bet that if you are facing a skilled opponent, you will be in a bad way. And I want to remind you that we are facing a very skilled opponent. There is a sense in which we know this to be true, that we have to prepare for the conflict that is going on all around us. Yet so often when it comes to our faith, we are not thinking through the fights. We're not thinking through the seasons we're in. We're not thinking through the temptations and the trials that lie ahead. And often we find ourselves unprepared for what comes. I mean, maybe you've been there where you've entered into temptation, you've entered into a trial, you've entered into a hardship, and you feel like your legs just got swept out from under you, right? You just weren't ready for it. You didn't see it coming. And often that can do great damage to our faith. But as we think through this idea of being a disciple maker, I don't want that to be the case for us. I don't want us to enter into this arena of fighting for the hearts and the souls of the world around us. I don't want us to enter into this process of making disciples and helping Christians grow. And then temptations come and we're not ready. We're not prepared. Because if that's the case, there's a high possibility that we will fall when the temptations come. But before we look at these temptations of Jesus, I'm hoping to kind of draw out for you three tactics that the enemy uses in terms of temptation. But before we we get into that, I I do want to draw your attention to verse 1. 
It's a very significant verse, and it says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And sometimes we might skip over that, but that's such an interesting statement. That the Spirit of God led the Son of God into temptation in order for him to fulfill the plan of God the Father. Now I want to be clear, I want to be explicitly clear. It does not say that God tempted Jesus, that God the Father tempted God the Son. It is clear in this text that it is the devil, it is Satan, it is the enemy that tempted Jesus. Similarly, similarly, James 1 reminds us that no one undergoing a trial should ever say, I am being tempted by God. And he goes on to explain, because God is not the one who tempts. But it is interesting to note that not only did God the Father allow Jesus to be tempted, but it was the Spirit of God who led him to the place where he would be tempted. And why did this happen? Well, one thing that we know is that what is meant for evil, God can use for good. Amen? God uses for good. You see, God used this temptation brought about by Satan, but one in which he led his son into to affirm Jesus in his ministry and also to be a blessing to us. Because remember, the fact that Jesus was tempted means that he is able, as the author of Hebrews tells us, to sympathize with us in our weakness. The Bible says that he was tempted in every way, yet did not sin. Let's just pause for a second and consider how amazing that is. That Jesus was tempted in every way, and yet without sin. And you might be thinking, well, we only have three recorded here. Well, these are just three temptations that are recorded. Jesus was tempted like any human being for the entirety of his life. The entire, we know this because in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was tempted to abla- abandon the plan of the Father for a safe way out, and yet he said, not my will but yours be done. There was a real temptation for, for him to pull back from what was ahead of him on the cross. Jesus was tempted every moment of his, of his life, just like so many of us are, but because of that, he is a Savior who is able to sympathize with our weakness. I don't know, that's encouragement, that's encouraging to me. Because if Jesus is tempted in every way, that it means that there's no temptation that I will go through that my king can't sympathize with. Not just that he has an abstract theological concept of it in his mind, but he can sympathize because he's been there. He has fought that fight and he has overcome. I don't know. That's encouraging to me. So what I want you to get is that God can use temptation brought about by Satan for our good as well. So not only did God take this temptation of Jesus and use it for our good, but I believe that God will take the temptation that we often face and he will use it for our good when we are faithful and he'll use it for our good even when we're not. So one of the things I want to encourage you with is this. Don't judge your walk with Jesus based off of the amount of temptation that you face. Because so often I have sat across from Christians and they have been so discouraged by the fact that they are being tempted and they they use that as evidence that they're not strong in the faith. Listen, Jesus was tempted. It does not mean he was weak in the faith. The the strength and the weakness of our faith doesn't depend on whether or not we're tempted. It, It depends on what we do when we're tempted. We will be tempted. It is somewhat unavoidable for us as Christians. So we don't judge our walk by whether or not we are tempted. We judge our walk by what comes out when we are, right? Consider a cup that's filled with something. When it's jostled, 
Whatever flows out of it is what was inside of it. Oftentimes, God will allow temptation to come upon us to show us what's actually inside of us. You see, we don't judge our walks with Jesus by the good times. I mean, that's easy, right? Everything's going well. There's some money in the bank account. My kid didn't get kicked out of school today, right? My spouse is happy with me. Job's going well. Everything's good. Look at my faith. That's not when we judge our faith. We judge our faith when it seems like the bottom's falling out. And we examine what's spilling out of us in that moment. When the pressure is put on us, when the refining hand of God is working, what flows out of us reveals what is inside of us. It's easy to say that God is good when everything is good. Sometimes it's difficult to say that God is good when nothing is going right. Right? We are not failing because we are tempted. We don't judge our walk by the good moments. We, we want to examine ourselves that when the pressure comes, when the trial comes, when the temptation comes, what flows out of us in those moments? But our aim is always to stand firm in the midst of temptation, knowing that God can use it for our good. See, again, that's a beautiful thing about God, because even when we fail in temptation, which we don't want to, amen, God can use that to teach us areas that we need to grow in our life. He, is, he never stops refining us. But our aim is to always stand firm in the midst of temptation, knowing that God can use it for our good. So as we consider disciple-making and looking at the temptation of Jesus here as he was about to begin his ministry, so notice that, that's important. This happens immediately before Jesus enters into public ministry. So in some sense you could say he was being prepared for ministry by facing temptations... I want to offer you as we consider this three ways that Satan will tempt you specifically in regards to being a disciple maker, but not only in that realm. So we're just focusing on disciple making, but, but I think that these three tactics that Satan uses are tactics that he uses with great effectiveness in almost every area of our life. But we're going to try to tie it into this idea of, of disciple making. So here's the first tactic of Satan. Satan tempts us where we are weak. Look at verses 2 through 4. It says, after he, and that's Jesus, had fasted 40 days and 40 nights. I love this. He was hungry. Amen. I don't know if you've ever tried to fast for 40 days. If he went without food or water, it's what we would call a supernatural fast. Moses did one of those. I don't recommend you try one of those. Okay? And unless God gives you that direct revelation, I'm going to sustain you because your body without water for 30 days, it's a bad look. Okay? But Jesus, it says, he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, right? Reliving the trial of Israel in the wilderness. That's amazing. It's another sermon. Right? And so he was hungry like any man would be. And it says, then the tempter approached him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And he answered, it is written, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. That is a real temptation. See, that wouldn't be a temptation for me. I can't turn stones into bread. But Jesus could. As the son of God. And so Satan comes and notice this. He tempts Jesus where he is most vulnerable. Verse 2. Again it tells us that Jesus had been fasting. He was hungry. And so where is the first place that Satan attacks? Where Jesus is weakest. He tempts him to break his fellowship with God. To pursue a lesser thing. Now there is something very important to note here. 
I want you to get this. Satan attacks Jesus where he is weak because he knows where he is weak. But the thing here with Jesus is Jesus knows where he's, he's weak as well. Which is why the moment that Satan attacks him, the moment he brings this temptation in front of Jesus, Jesus is able to respond with scripture in a faithful way. And he responds with Deuteronomy 8.3, which says, He humbled you by letting you go hungry. Then he gave you manna to eat, which you and your fathers had not known, so that you might learn that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Now, we're not going to focus on this too much in this sermon, but please note that every time Jesus combats uh, temptation, what is he combat it with scripture with the word of God that's amazing and for Jesus his Bible was the Old Testament and he knew the Old Testament so well that he could quote off Deuteronomy 8 3 when he was tempted by Satan in this area where he was weak so here's the thing right not only does Jesus know scripture but he believes it to be true he has seen God the Father work before and he believes that God can overcome in this area. And he, listen to me, he is believing that God's deliverance is better than anything this world could offer. And so Jesus is able to respond like this because he already knew where he was vulnerable. So let me take this and try to apply it to you. Here's the question for you. Do you know where you're vulnerable? Do you know where you are weak? Because Satan does. Satan knows where you are tempted the most to give in. And so as you seek to make much of Jesus in this area of disciple making, as you seek to make much of Jesus in any area of your life, Satan is going to come after you, not at your strong points. He's going to come after you where you are already the most vulnerable. And he will come with a vengeance. Because Satan wants to see you fall. We can't forget this. I mean, spiritual warfare, but like Satan's not like indifferent towards us. He doesn't feel this apathy towards us. He hates us with a vengeance. He wants to see you fall. So if you struggle with pride, right, if that's an area of weakness for you, then he is going to try to convince you that you are too big to be making disciples of these little folks. Right? If you struggle in your marriage, if that is a weak spot for you, he is going to try to stir the pot in your home so much so that you are tempted to be so distracted trying to get things right that you never step foot onto the battlefield fighting to make disciples. If your area of weakness is lust, he is going to tempt you to fall so that you feel an unbearable sense of guilt and shame so that you convince yourself that you are too broken for God to use. And Satan knows where you are at your most vulnerable. Do you? But I want you to hear me clearly. I'm trying to encourage you. I want us to fight well. It is not enough for us to simply know where we are weak. You have to be fighting to become strong in those areas. And I would add this, you have to be fighting in the good moments. So one of the joys of, of being a pastor, and it, it is a joy most of the time, uh, is I get to sit with people and help them fight their sin. Uh, sometimes it can be weighty. It's often weighty. I take it very seriously, but I delight in it. But one of the things, and some of you men and women who are here will testify that I have said this to you on multiple times. One of the things that I teach people is, listen, you need to fight in the good moments, not when you're already on the battlefield. 
You need to prepare in the good moments, not when you're already on the battlefield. Listen, if your sword is dull and you step into a sword fight and try to take a time out to sharpen it, you've already lost. So we want to be fighting to overcome these weaknesses in those moments when things are going well. Do you know when most men and women fight, try to, to fight lust? When they're already lusting. Do you know when, when people try to fight for the good of their marriage? When it's already broken. And what we have to do is be fighting in these areas when things are going well. The best time to fight against lust is in those moments when you're not tempted to lust. To be meditating on scripture with a, with, with, with a focused mind about fleeing sexual immorality because every other sin you commit is outside the body, but, but that is a sin that you commit inside the body, right? To flee from that, right? When, when, you're, when you're struggling to fulfill your role in marriage of saying, no, 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 in the good moments, my, my call is to, to love my wife like Christ loved the church and gave herself up for her. Uh, for, and if you're the wife, you're sitting there and in the good moments, you're saying, Lord, give me grace to, to respect my husband, to submit to my husband, to model the church. Right? We fight in the good moments because if the only time we run to scripture to overcome these weaknesses is in the midst of temptation, we've already lost the fight. Are you tracking with me? Because remember, Satan knows where you are weak. He's coming for you there. So in those moments of respite when he's not attacking you, do the diligent work of fighting to make much of Jesus so that like Jesus, when the temptation comes, you've already sharpened the weapon. You already know the word and you're already believing that what God has is better for you. If I'm not sure that what God has is best for me when I'm tempted to abandon what God has for me, I'm probably going to abandon it. I need to be fighting in those good moments to believe that God is for me and not against me. So Satan, one of the tactics that he uses with great effectiveness is he tempts us where we are weak. But here's the second tactic that Satan uses, again, with great effectiveness. Satan will tempt us to force God's hand. Satan will tempt us to force God's hand. Look at verses 5 through 7 there. It says, then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will give his angels orders concerning you and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus told him, it is also written, do not test the Lord your God. Now this is an interesting temptation. And it's interesting for a couple of reasons. So first, Satan takes Jesus out of the wilderness to the city. So the holy city is what? Jerusalem. You can talk back. It's okay. It's Jerusalem. And so he takes him to the temple in Jerusalem. He takes him to the pinnacle of the temple, to the top of the temple. And he says, listen, throw yourself off of this. And if you do, angels will come and protect you. And he was right. He was quoting from Psalm, the Psalms. God said that, that he would protect his son. But why was this a temptation for Jesus? Why was this something that, that Satan tried to use? Because the answer is that if this happened and kind of the center of this holy city at the temple where the people of God would have already been and they see Jesus and he throws himself down and angels come, if they're good Jews, they'll know what's written in scripture and they'll say, ah, this is God's son. And so G Satan was tempting Jesus to throw himself off so that people would believe him, would believe that he was the son of God. 
Now you might be thinking, well, why is that bad? Isn't that what Jesus wanted? He wants people to believe that he is the son of God. You're absolutely right. That's what Jesus wants, but not that way. See, that's not the way that God planned for redemption and belief to take place. And so the temptation there that was presented to Jesus was to force God to act in a way that Jesus saw fit, not God the Father. One author has a helpful quote about what's transpiring here, and he writes this, at the, speaking about this temptation, he says, the temptation here is to pursue the right thing in the wrong way. And to allow the pursuit to become idolatrous. It is presuming upon God by trying to force God to serve our agenda and trying to force God's hand to act. Listen to me. As we embark on this task of being disciple makers, there will be a real temptation to force God's hand to serve our agenda. There will be a temptation for us to try and dictate the terms of what disciple making should look like, to dictate what we think it should demand, to dictate to God what we think it should cost. But I want to be clear with you, we don't get to define the terms. So what does this look like? Let me, let me give you a couple of practical examples to, to hopefully flesh this out. What does it look like to pursue the right thing in the wrong way and allow that pursuit to become idolatrous, to be an idol? Uh, we want people to come to church, amen? Right? We want people to come to church, right? Okay. okay. We would have to start over at the beginning if we weren't, you know. We, we want people to come to church to hear the word of God. We want this place filled. That is a right thing to pursue. But we can pursue getting people here in the wrong way. We can remove the offense of the gospel from what's proclaimed from the pulpit. We can make Sunday mornings a show that keeps people entertained. There are a lot of talented people here. We could make it a show. We could build the Sunday gathering so that it is all about consuming and you don't have to think a lick about the person sitting next to you. We could build a church that attracts people that way. Listen to me, and I'm not trying to be haughty here. If the goal was to fill this building, give me one month and I can have us averaging 300 people in attendance every Sunday. But I'd have to go about it in unfaithful ways. You see, what this temptation teaches us is that the means do not just, or that the ends, sorry, do not justify the means. You see, the ends and the means have to both be faithful if we want to be faithful. But let's go further, right? What does it look like to attempt to force God's hand? What does it look like to attempt to force God's hand? Here's an example, and it drives me crazy, and I'm going to pick on them because I'm one of them. One of the areas where I see people trying to force God's hand often is actually in seminary students. Here's what I mean by that. So so I went to seminary. um, Thankful for it. I'm glad I did it. A lot of people will come out of seminary and they've got this wealth of knowledge. And it is good knowledge. They have grinded for years to understand the Bible. Well, they have prepared themselves for ministry. And a lot of times they've accumulated a great deal of debt along the way, which I hate that. That's a different topic for another day. Uh, but, but, so they come out of seminary and they've got this head full of knowledge. They have some debt, but they think that God owes them something now. I've just completed four years of ministry. I have trained and dedicated my life to being a pastor. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to step into this situation where I don't really have any provision for my family. I'm not going to be able to pay the bills. I'm not going to be able to pay off this debt. But God's going to provide for me. That's not faith. That's stupidity. Now, I'm not saying God can't lead people into places where he says, 
trust me and I will provide. But I think that's a clear call from God. I think too many people are trying to force God into that. Of, well, I'm trying to be faithful to you. And you said if I'm faithful that you'll provide. So pay my electric bill, God, though I have no income coming in whatsoever. We can try to force God's hand the other way. God has, been, God has clearly called some men and women to serve in particular ministries. And they refuse to go because they don't have an insurance package. Trying to force God's hand. You want me to do that ministry, God, you better provide it on my terms. They try to force God's hand. My favorite example, and um, you know, they say, I've said this before, but they say that you're allowed like one good story about yourself a year if you're a pastor. Pastor John's not preaching that much anymore, so I'm going to tell his one good story of him. Uh, so you have no more this year, okay? But one of my, one of my favorite stories, and we use this in premarital counseling because it's an amazing picture. But, but um, Pastor John, when he was called to seminary, how long ago was that? 60, 70 years ago? Um, <laughs> early 90s, we could say, right? Early 90s, when he was called to seminary, uh, living in right outside of Chicago, and knew that God had called him to come to this place. The problem was, and it wasn't, it wasn't a problem, that's a bad way, the reality was is that God hadn't affirmed that call in his wife yet. And so he had two options in that moment. He could force God's hand and timing by saying, no, we're going to seminary and you better suck it up and, and, and God will just have to work it, work it out. He could have forced God's hand in that moment and yet what he did is he decided to wait years until the Lord affirmed that call in his wife and they went and he attended seminary. But there was a real temptation there, was there not to force God's hand in that moment? To force God to work on our terms and how we want him to work. Now you may be thinking, well, this is good for me because that's all about seminary students and pastors and I'm not one of those. Well, hold on a minute. We can try to force God's hand in other ways. Thinking even in terms of disciple making. Have you ever tried to cut a deal with God? Have you ever tried to cut a deal with him? If you do this... I promise I'll do this. We can do that with disciple making. You know what, God? If you send me, if you send someone to me and they ask me about you, I'll be happy to tell them about you. If you send somebody to me and they ask for me to disciple them, I'll, I'll be happy to do that. I'll do it. Forget the fact that God told us to go and make disciples. No, God, you, you bring them to me. And if you do this, then... I will be faithful. That's trying to force God's hand. Or you could argue that you are forcing God's hand if you neglect the simple means of grace that he has given you to look more like him. This can affect disciple making because if we are lacking in the fundamental elements of following Jesus, it will be difficult to make disciples. How do you make a disciple, someone who, who, who is consistent in prayer, who loves their fellowship with God, if you don't love your fellowship with God? But we can try to force God's hand because here's the thing that we know is that God will grow us. The Bible tells us that's a beautiful thing about God. He says that, it says that he who began a good work in, in you will be faithful to complete it. The question is, are we willing to participate or are we going to force God to work in spite of us? You know, similarly, Paul reminds Timothy that when we are faithless, he is faithful because he cannot deny himself. Here's the thing I'm getting at. At times, we attempt to force God to get us to the place that we should be pursuing willingly. Let me give you an example. You know, my background is in counseling, and one of the things that, again, my wife and I love to do is counsel. We love to counsel individuals. We love to counsel couples. 
And I cannot tell you the amount of times that people have sat across from me that we wouldn't say it to them directly like this, but we've had conversations uh, amongst one another that if this couple, if this individual would have just been faithful with the basic things of faith, they wouldn't be in the position that they're in now. If they would have just been pursuing God through his word, he would have shown them their errors along the way that would have prevented them from getting to this point. But the reason that they are with us is because God is going to help them understand he's just going to use other people when they could have avoided a lot of pain, a lot of hardship, and a lot of struggle if they just would have been faithful with what God had called them to do. But yet they force God's hand in that he is faithful. He will finish the task. But sometimes it's in spite of us not working alongside of us. The old hymn, What a Friend in Jesus, picked up on this when it says, Oh, what peace we often forfeit, and oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Sometimes we are bringing pain and hardship and trial on ourselves because we are not being faithful in the little things. But let's just take a minute and praise God that when we are faithless, He is faithful that he does not abandon us and that he will finish the work that he has started in us. I'm just an adamant believer. I, I think that we are refined by fire, but sometimes the fire doesn't have to be so hot. Sometimes we're the ones who stoke it because we refuse to be obedient. Here's the thing. There are things in us that God is going to cut out for our sanctification. And we can either squirm around on the table and make it hard or we can sit there and take it and be done with it. Because God is going to finish the work. Praise God for that. But we can attempt to force his hand. And we have to guard against this temptation of pursuing the right things in the wrong ways. We have to guard against the temptation to force God's hand to try to get him to bend to our agenda and our will, even our will, even as it relates to disciple making. You tracking with me? Here's the third tactic that Satan used, and we'll end with this. So not only does Satan attack us where we are weak, not only does Satan tempt us to force God's hand, but check this out. Satan tempts us to take shortcuts. Satan tempts us to take shortcuts. Look at verses 8 through 11. It says, again, the devil took him to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you fall down and worship me. And then Jesus told him, go away, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Now, this temptation is fascinating to me because there is like this deep rooted theological reality in this, which I'm going to touch on and we can unpack it at a later date if you want to. But let me tell you what's going on. This is interesting to me. Satan takes Jesus to this high mountain. We don't know where the mountain is. It's some high mountain, um, most likely. Uh, if he could see all the kingdoms of the earth, I don't know that it was a physical mountain. But in, in reality, whatever's going on is that, that Satan takes Jesus. And can just picture this with me, right? And so they're standing side by side. And all the kingdoms of the earth are there in front of him. And Satan looks at Jesus. He says, hey, man, I will give you all of that if you bow down and worship me. And what is so fascinating to me is Jesus never argues the terms of the deal. He never says those aren't yours to give because this is the big theological truth and I'm going to try to unpack it in, in, in two minutes. In Jesus' divinity, he had the right to rule everything. As God, Jesus was already ruler, amen? That's the Trinitarian reality of one in three persons 
Jesus Christ in his divinity had the right to rule. But Jesus was made up of two natures, not only the divine, but the what? Human. Right, that's a mystery to us. We know one nature. We are human in nature. But Jesus had two natures. And I don't necessarily say he was 100% God, 100% man. I think the faithful biblical picture is in his divinity, he was fully divine. And in his humanity, he was fully human. Right? And, so, and, so, and so that is, that is what, what Jesus was. And so in his divinity, he already owned all of those kingdoms. But in his humanity, he had no right to rule this world. We see that in Psalm 2. Right? We see that in multiple places in the psalm. That's why God says, ask of me and I will give the nations to you, speaking of his son. Well, why would Jesus have to ask if they were already his? Because in his humanity, he did not have the right to rule. But the beautiful thing about the cross and resurrection is that Jesus, through his death and resurrection, in his humanity, won the right to rule. That's why in Philippians 2 it says that God has given him the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. In his humanity, God is saying, I am giving him a name that is above every other name. In the, through the cross and the resurrection, Jesus won the right to rule. Now, we can argue about that later. That's where I stand, okay? But I, I, I notice how Jesus never argued the terms of the deal. He never said, what are you doing, Satan? You can't offer me that. So it was a real temptation to Jesus. And what Satan was tempting Jesus to do was to take a shortcut. Why go to the cross and endure that pain? Why suffer and feel the weight and the anger and the hatred of God? Why feel all that for these feeble people when I will just give you this world? Is that not what you want? But see, what we learn about Jesus is what he wanted more was to be faithful to the Father. Knowing that the Father in his time, in his way, produced that which he had promised Jesus. Right? Revelation 13.8 tells us, and those who live on the earth will worship him, everyone whose name was not written from the foundation of the world in the book of, uh, of the lamb who was slaughtered before the foundation of the world. There was a book of those who redeemed, sealed by the blood of the slaughtered lamb. Jesus knew the plan. He knew the way that he would win the right to rule in his humanity, but Satan was tempting him to take a shortcut. It was always God's plan to redeem people through the blood of the lamb. Jesus knew this. And he knew there was no sufficient shortcut. Jesus knew there was no easy way out if he was to remain faithful. And please hear me, church. When it comes to making disciples, there are no shortcuts. I think as we have talked through this, I've told you it will cost you something. You will have to take up your cross and follow after him. You will have to sacrifice. You will have to do these things. I think some of us still deep down believe there's got to be a way around that. There has to be a shortcut. And what this temptation reminds us is that that thought process is Satan tempting you. Take the easy way. Disciple on your terms. Make much of Jesus when it's convenient for you. But listen, if Jesus gets to define the terms, he says that we must go. And when we go, it will mean that times we have to leave people, we have to leave resources, we have to leave comfort. But if we are going to make disciples, we will go and there is no shortcut. It means that we, we have to cultivate a family culture here among the body of Newbury where discipleship can flourish. It takes work. It means we invest in one another. We believe in one another. We pursue the good and holiness of one another. We genuinely fight for one one another as a family and there is no shortcut it means that we study the word and we know it intimately and we build lives of dependence that is rooted in prayer there is no way around that if we are going to be faithful disciple makers it means that we dedicate our lives and not just a moment 
to the purpose for which God has called us. And there is no shortcut. There is no shortcut, but in the end, it is worth it. Because this is why we are here, to make disciples. I would be willing to bet that as Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, after three years of ministry, after enduring the cross, after being crucified and buried and raised to life, that when he ascended into heaven, having not taken the out that was offered to him at the beginning, there was not a doubt in his mind that it was worth it. That it was worth it. As we seek to make disciples, when we are focused on the task before us, there will be real temptation that comes. And we have to be prepared for the fight. But I want to encourage you with something. Though we are tempted, we don't need to be afraid. Because scripture teaches us in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that no temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he will always provide a way out so that you may be able to bear it. Now let's think about that. No temptation has overtaken you except that which is common. It's common to us. It was common to Jesus. And it says that God is faithful. And how is he faithful? Because one, he won't ever let Satan tempt you to the point that you have no option but to sin. That is a freeing thing for us, is it not? And we know that because God said there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. What Jesus won on the cross, one of the things that you receive is the ability in Christ to genuinely fight sin. And fight temptation. And so God will never put you in a situation. He will never allow Satan to corner you in such a way that there is no way out. But what it doesn't say is that God will remove you from the temptation. It says that God will provide a way of escape. And one of the greatest ways of escape that he has given us is this. And we know that because this is what Jesus used. And so many of us aren't able to escape because we don't see the way out. But be encouraged that even in the midst of temptation, God is fighting for you. That is amazing. God is fighting for you. God is providing a means of escape and a path of faithfulness for you to walk. You are never in a corner without a way out. Man, it can feel like that sometimes, doesn't it? But God is faithful. And he will always provide a way. The beautiful thing about God is that even when we do fail, even when we stay in the corner, even when we give in to temptation, we have a Savior who did not. And we are not disqualified. We are not removed from the task because we have failed. Because Jesus did not fail. If we are in him, we have forgiveness and grace even when we drop the ball. I say this, I am thankful when any believer fights temptation well. I can't begin to express how thankful I am that Jesus overcame. 
because in him we have hope and life and forgiveness and freedom. And that is the message of the gospel. That is the hope that we have that though we were sinners and had rebelled against God and God in the moment of sin when Adam and Eve broke his first commandment there in the garden and they, they ate, of it, he should have rightly ended it all. They deserved that. But yet the Bible tells us that God was patient and kind and his patience and kindness was meant to lead people to repentance. That though we had offended the eternal holy God of the universe and he would have been right to destroy us, he decided to display grace and patience and mercy. And he promised that he would fix what was broken. He would overcome sin. He would conquer the grave. He would provide freedom. And he did. Because Jesus Christ showed up and he lived the perfect life. He was tempted in every way yet without sin, which means he was the only one who did not deserve death. He did not deserve to be punished for sin and yet he went to the cross and God, God poured out all of his hatred and wrath and anger and condemnation on the innocent, perfect, spotless lamb and Jesus served as our sacrifice. And as I mentioned a few times, he was buried and we believe that he was raised from the dead, declaring that salvation had been won. And God invites us to freely come into relationship with him through grace and through repentance, right? Or through faith and repentance by, by trusting in what Jesus has done for us, by believing that the only way we can be made right with God is because of what Christ has done. And by repenting of our sins, which literally means changing your mind by believing that God is right and I'm not. That his way is best and mine is, and I'm going to run after him. And like I say so frequently, we will fail and fall in running after him. But there's grace even more. We serve an amazing God. And so as we consider this task of disciple-making, and we consider this task of, of running after Jesus and fighting to make much of him as we make disciples, let me end today by just reminding you, it is worth it. It is worth it. So let's stand firm and be faithful. Amen.